Hey everybody, this is Pedro Chung, and welcome to Bible Sumo Weekly, a Bible study podcast for everyday Christians. We're going to take a brief break in the book of Genesis and jump to Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30, episode title, Parable of the Talents. In this episode, we will be covering a passage in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. And this is one of the final parables of Jesus recorded by Matthew, and it's the parable of the talents. Now, in many of Jesus' parables, he'll give an explanation afterwards. For example, back in Matthew chapter 13, when he gives the parable of the soils, he explains to his disciples later what the parable meant. But there are some parables that there is no additional explanation given, and the parable of the talents is one of them. But even though there is no further explanation, as we'll soon see, this parable teaches such a simple truth that explanation really isn't necessary. Now, just a bit of background. Remember that Matthew, the author of this first gospel of Jesus, he was a tax collector. And during the time of Jesus, tax collectors were hated. They were reviled. They were looked upon as traitors because they were serving the government of Rome and taxing, perhaps unfairly, the people of Israel. But Matthew, when Jesus said to follow him back in Luke chapter 5, Matthew leaves everything he had to follow Jesus. And it was a huge cost because as a tax collector to leave his livelihood, if he were to go back to make some sort of living, he would really have few choices because he couldn't go back necessarily to be a tax collector anymore. And because he was hated by society, it would have been very difficult for him to find working relationships with other people in society. Now, the goal of Matthew's gospel is quite simple because he was writing primarily to Jewish readers. And his main point is to show the reader that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And in the book of Matthew, the way that it's structured, Jesus is recorded to giving five oral discourses. The first discourse is found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and that is often called the Sermon on the Mount. The second discourse is in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus commissions his 12 disciples. The third discourse is in Matthew chapter 13, when Jesus gives a number of parables about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. The fourth discourse is found in Matthew chapter 18, when Jesus explains that the true believer needs to have a childlike faith. And in the fifth and final discourse, we have the Olivet Discourse, which begins in Matthew chapter 24 and continues through chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus explains to his disciples that there's going to be signs that they will be able to see that will point of Jesus' imminent second return, because they will see signs that there will be wars and tribulation. False prophets will arise along with persecution. There will be what is described as the abomination of desolation. And then, finally, we see the return of Christ. And Jesus explains in Matthew chapter 24, he states, Therefore, you also must be ready. 
for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Following this explanation of the return of Christ, his second coming, Jesus then goes on to give three parables. The first parable is the parable of the two servants. And in this parable, there's one servant who is doing the right things when his master comes back. But there's a second servant who's a wicked servant who beats others and eats and drinks with drunkards and did not expect his master's return. And this parable is to highlight that we are to be like the good servant, to do the right things in anticipation when the master comes back. And that master coming back is representing Jesus. The second parable is the parable of the ten virgins. And you'll recall in this parable, there were ten virgins who took lamps and oil to meet the bridegroom. Five of the virgins were considered wise because they took extra oil. But there were five foolish virgins who took no no oil. And when the bridegroom was delayed and finally came, the the five foolish virgins did not have oil for their lamps. And being delayed because they had to buy oil, they were not let in to the marriage feast. And so the five foolish virgins represented individuals that were not ready for Jesus' return. So then we come to the third parable, the parable of the talents. And it's this parable that we will take a closer examination of in this episode. And it's found again in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. Let me read the parable to us. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who calls his servants and entrusts to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reaped where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, 
I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will, more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast a worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus begins the story of this parable with a man, a master, going on a journey. And he has several servants, or the Greek word used is doulos, so slaves. And to these these slaves, he entrusts them his property. Now, one of the most misunderstood parts of this very familiar parable is the idea of talents. And a lot of times when we think of the parable of the talents, the English word talent, we tend to connote talent with, well, talent, a gifting or an ability. But here in the time of Jesus, the word talent refers to a measurement of weight, and it is almost always used exclusively referring to money. So the word talent is a measurement of weight, usually of some sort of precious metal usually gold, silver, maybe bronze. And if we think about five talents of silver, or for sure gold, this would be a very significant amount of money. So in other words, five talents of gold would have been a large amount of money for most people, especially for slaves. And in this parable, we see that the master knew the abilities of his slaves and he gave to each according to his ability. Now, based on the context here in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, we can assume confidently that the master in this parable represents Jesus. And his journey, the master's journey, is representing the time between Jesus' first and second coming. The slaves would depict us, that is, professing Christians, who have been entrusted with resources that have been God-given. Now, in verse 16 and 17, we see that the first two slaves were productive. The first one, who was the one that was given five talents, the text says that he went at once. So he went immediately, without delay, and he traded his money and he doubled his money. That is, he doubled his master's money. And the second slave, who was given two talents, he did the same thing. But in contrast, in verse 18, we see that the third slave did not. But instead, he went and he dug in the ground and hid his one and only talent. He hid all of his master's money. Now, in defense of this third slave, you should understand that during the time of Jesus, One of the most secure ways to store valuables uh, and avoiding threat of loss or theft was to bury treasure underground. You remember that in the parable of the hidden treasure back in Matthew chapter 13, there was a man who was digging, I guess, and he found hidden treasure. And presumably that hidden treasure was originally hidden underground by another individual. Because again, this would be a very safe way to store valuables. 
because during this time, there would always be threats of war and occupation, um, thieves and robbers. And so if you hid your treasure underground, your valuables, no one would know where they were. And even if the, the nation would be rampaged by foreigners, you could one day go back to the place that you had buried your treasure and you would be able to retrieve your valuables. So this was actually a common way of storing valuables. But even so, by doing this, the third servant did not in any way give any opportunity to increase the capital, that is the money that had been entrusted to him by his master. So we then see in verses 19 to 23 that the master comes back after a long time had elapsed. And the servants were quite eager to report back to the master what they had done with the talents that they had been entrusted. The first said that he had doubled his five talents, and the second servant said that he had doubled his two talents. And so to the first two slaves, the master speaks these simple words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Those words are probably the best words a slave can receive from his master. And isn't that what we want to hear when we see God and meet him in heaven? Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1-2, through 2, he writes, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. The word steward that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians, it comes from the Greek word oikonomos. And the meaning of the word steward, it has the idea that he is a manager of the house, but he is not an owner. We are stewards. We possess nothing. It is only our master, our God, who possesses everything. Think back as we have been studying the life of Joseph. He was never an owner, remember? He was always a steward, but he was a faithful steward. It was his father, Jacob, who owned everything, but Jacob made him a steward, a manager over the household, over the sheep, even over his brothers. It was Potiphar who was the owner, but he made Joseph his steward his manager over his household. It was even the prisoner guard, the prisoner guard captain, who made Joseph again the steward over the prison. And it was even the king of Egypt, Pharaoh himself, who made Joseph a steward, a manager over the nation. But he was never the owner. You and I are not owners. We are merely stewards but we are called by the actual owner, our master, to be faithful. So look now in contrast in this parable, the third servant in verse 24 and 25. And you'll note that there are three things this servant does that are absolutely evil and atrocious. The third slave's first sin is that he produced absolutely nothing. You recall that the first two servants had invested their money and had produced a a doubling of the capital that was given to him. But this servant 
produced nothing. He was absolutely useless. He was impotent. There was nothing good that he did. He produced absolutely nothing. The second sin is that the third servant actually shifts the blame to the master, and he calls his master a hard man, an unreasonable man. And he even accuses the master when he says, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, he's accusing his master as being dishonest, unscrupulous, hoping for gain that was not really deserving of him. And finally, the third servant makes a false excuse. He makes an invalid excuse because he actually tells the master that he is fearful. He admits to being afraid of losing his master's money. And so therefore, he had no desire to increase the wealth of his master. And so instead, he buries it in the ground. The response of the master in this parable is he calls this third servant, this third slave, wicked and slothful. That is, he was lazy and evil. And you'll notice that if the third servant's excuse of being fearful of losing his master's money, if that was true, which it was not, this third slave would have at least put the money in the bank for some sort of interest. But the third servant's excuse was untruthful and invalid. And this third servant was found unfaithful. And so we see and we read at the end of this parable that the master casts this worthless servant into the outer darkness. And the term outer darkness refers to hell, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, we know as Christians that our salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. But our saving faith is never alone. That is, that our true saving faith, as James chapter 2 states, our faith will be accompanied by good works. James writes in chapter 2 verse 17, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But let me describe more precisely what good works entails. Usually, we think of good works as simply sinning less and being more compliant and obedient to God's laws. But I think good works is more than just that. It's actually being productive for God's kingdom. It's bearing fruit. One of my favorite quotes is the simple quote which says, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Paul writes later in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he writes, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. You and I are like an athlete. We have only one race to run, and so we want to exert our all to win that race. And you and I are given one life. We have one life to live 
to make a difference and to glorify God with what he has entrusted us. So let's make that life count. Now, I want to close by reminding us that it is our Lord Jesus Christ, it is God who enables, empowers, and motivates us to this end. We don't just be productive by sheer will or grit. Now, it does require discipline. It does require effort. But our enablement, our empowerment, and our motivation comes from Christ. We were dead to sins, but now we're alive in Christ. And when we were regenerate and converted, we now receive the ability to do this, to be productive for God. We've received the Holy Spirit who now indwells in us and empowers us in our progressive sanctification and our desire to work for His glory. And we don't do this out of duty, but in response to God's love for us, it gives us the motivation to live our entire life for His glory. Thanks for listening to Bible Sumo Weekly. For more information about me or this podcast, visit our website at biblesumo.com. And you can always send me questions and feedback by direct messaging me on Twitter at BibleSumo. And in our next episode, we will return to our series in the book of Genesis and the life of Joseph. And we will see Joseph seeing his 10 brothers for the first time in over 20 years. Follow our podcast and listen to our Bible studies each and every week here at Bible Sumo Weekly.